Hey, this is Jay Paris, author of the new book, Game of My Life, Rams. I just want to say how happy I am to be on Rams Showcase. Here we go. You're now on patrol with Sheriff Joe Baggs. Welcome back to another edition of On Patrol with Sheriff Joe Bags. Today I have a very special guest, the author of the book, Game of My Life, Rams. Mr. Jay Paris, how are you doing, Jay? Hey, what's up, Sheriff? Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to talking a little Rams football. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Rams football is a pretty hot topic right now. We know how this season's going. And then, of course, with your book, I've actually seen a lot of things about this, you know, uh, as as far as your your Twitter goes and everything, you're you're meeting some really awesome people, and it seems like it's really just been a, a pretty cool time. So uh, this book, I mean, what kind of what what started this this process for you? Well, you know, uh, Sheriff, I, w- I was a Rams fan growing growing up, and uh, tell you how uh, how it used to be in the NFL. My my uncle was in the uh, the Marines, strong big Marine guy. If he put on his Marine uniform and we went up to the LA Coliseum. He could get in for fifty cents. Not only could he get in for fifty cents, but he could bring in six kids. So we'd go up there, uh, run around the Coliseum, mid sixties, Roman Gabriel, Dick Bass, Les Josephson, Pearson Forsum, all that. You know, I, I was hooked. So I wanted to be a Ram football player. Well, I'm about five ten, one fifty. That wasn't going to happen. But if I figured out if I could get paid to watch the Rams, if I could cover the Rams, so I always wanted to cover the Rams was working my way up in the newspaper world. The Rams, they're gone. Had to go down to San Diego, covered the Chargers for 20 years, but always checking that Rams score first. When word was coming out that they were coming back, I thought this would be a great time to, to reconnect with that Rams history and really reconnect a little bit with my uh, teenage years and how much that meant. I, I just didn't want that, that history and that legacy to, to be lost because a lot of Ram fans today, you know, especially in L.A. where they weren't here for two decades, they're not aware of the Jack Youngbloods, or maybe they just heard stories about Roman Gabriel, or or maybe Fred Dreyer and Dennis Herrer. I mean, these Tom Mack, these great names that uh, maybe they could associate a story with them. So I asked 20 Ram legends for them to pick the game of their life, the game that had the most significant significance to them. Some guys picked big wins, some guys picked losses, but it just shows you. Um, you always think they're going to the, talk about their success, but sometimes it shows how deep some of those losses were. Tom Mack still talks about not moving in the 1974 conference title game against the Vikings when they were on the goal line. So he's been going to dinner on that game for you know 40, 50 years, and, and uh, he was kind enough to share it. So a really celebration of, of the Rams' history, a 71-year history of a franchise, which is the only one to win titles in three different cities, Cleveland, L.A., and St. Louis. Yeah, and, and it's actually just, it's kind of interesting, um, myself being, you know, such a huge Rams fan, but also only 26 years old, you know, it's it's a look at some of these players that I've never been able to get, so so reading through this book was actually really interesting, and there was... There was some stories in here that, that kind of had me cracking up, you know, Mike Lansford <laughs> and, you know, talking about playing the game with lipstick on his cheek. And then they're all walking through, uh, you know, Washington with, with these dolls. You know, and I'm just sitting here like in my living room laughing at this book. And, and it's kind of just a really cool thing to, to get that deep of a look at these players that I was ne- never able to, to see. So, I mean, for you, uh, sitting down and being able to talk with these guys, 
and everything. And growing up as a Rams fan, all that, what what was that experience like? You know, it was almost out of body. It was like, you know, when Roman Gamerill calls, I mean, I, I, I'm getting goosebumps right now. I mean, that, that was my guy when I was a kid. And then to be able to, to kind of be on the same level with him, or at least, you know, you're not chasing him in the parking lot for an autograph. You're actually <laughs> sitting down and having coffee and, and uh, discussing, you know, their career. What struck me, Sheriff, was that these guys dug being Rams. I mean, it was cool to be a Ram and just that, you know, the Coliseum and the, you know, the sixties were pretty cool. You know, George Allen showed up, Roman Gabriel, and you had hundreds of thousands of people in the sixties in the Coliseum. Everybody had a good vibe. Everybody having a good time. It was kind of like Woodstock, but everybody kept their clothes on. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was that much fun. And I think what stands out is, these guys are prideful men now, and you think you're a Ram fan, and you think you're the Rams. These guys are still part of that organization, and, and to a man, they were uh, so happy that they were moving back to L.A. I, I think those guys kind of got lost, too, because, you know, they'd be uh, introduced or, or be invited to come back to St. Louis uh, during that break from L.A., and guys would go back there, and, and you know, no fault of those St. Louis fans. They didn't know who, who the heck they were, really. Now that they're back in L.A., and now they're picking an alumni guy to to light the torch before the game, and they're really including the the Rams with the legacy and uh, trying to keep that alive. And they've done a good job of it. And I, I think fans like talking about it. I know when I do book signings, I get a lot of people that come up and tell me that you know they went to the game with their dad or they went to the game with a cousin, and and now they're taking their kids. So that that's cool that 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 legacy is starting to uh, rekindle again. Cause it was dormant for over two decades. Yeah, it really was. And, and it's kind of interesting. I, I mentioned that, you know, I'm only 26. So so my history of watching the Rams was it's a large part of that has been the St. Louis Rams. And right. Sure. And, and I absolutely understand that of, you know, kind of not knowing who the Los Angeles guys were. And, and like I said, being a St. Louis Ram for so a fan for so long, you know, the team moving back, it actually it, it did a lot for for me personally, just to see, you know, that the history of the Rams in Los Angeles is that's a very real thing. And it's very cool to celebrate that. I don't discredit anything that happened in St. Louis. I still think that that's a, a very important time of the, of the Rams history, but you know, being in Los Angeles, I think it's clear that that's where they are supposed to be and where, where the history is. And I think that's really cool. But uh, going back a little bit to the book, I, there's so many stories in here that are, that are so cool. You know, uh, so I had to ask you, what was your favorite story of, of, uh, that's in this book? You know, I, I think that that's tough. I like asking which kid you like the most, right? <laughs> but it's, uh, the, the Jack Youngblood one got me. And, uh, Jack Youngblood, I mean, you know, Captain Blood, is there ever a better nickname? And he was such a stud and he was such a team leader and he's such a leader. And, and, uh, just hearing it, yeah, it's, it's, I'm not breaking news here, but for him to play in the Super Bowl with that broken leg, uh, that was amazing. But I think what a lot of people don't understand is that he broke it two games before that in the uh, division title game and, uh, against the Dallas Cowboys, 1979, the Super Bowl season. You know, you got to remember leading up to this, the Rams had lost three straight NFC Conference title games, two to the Vikings, and uh, they lost uh, four out of five. I mean, they kept knocking on the door, knocking on the door. And this bunch was determined to knock down that door. So when um, when uh, Captain Blood, when Jack limped to the Texas Stadium uh, locker room, he knew his leg was broken. He he, could, he felt a snap, and when he got caught up in the in the middle there, it was a line. 
They go in, they x-ray it, and the doc comes back and says, yep, Jack, it's broken. He goes, Dad, come it, Doc, I could have done that. Now tape it up. These are the Cowboys. we got a playoff game, you know. And the guy said, the, the doctor, uh, Dr. Shields said, I, I can't do that. And Jack said, now, now the veins are sticking out of his neck. Imagine Jack Youngblood pads and, and taped up and tape it up, Doc. And he goes, I can't because I don't know how to tape it up, which was pretty funny. He called the assistant trainer, Garen Chimont. He comes over, tapes it up. But when he went back out there, I think what's, what's neat is Ray Malavasi and the rest of the defensive guys trusted Jack. I mean, he wasn't going to go out there and, and you know, limp around and, and be a liability. They trusted him to say, dude, if you can play with a broken leg, you're Jack Jumbluck, go for it. He plays that game. He plays the next week to win the NFC title. Then, of course, he played in the Super Bowl, the heartbreaker. Super Bowl 14, where they were leading in the fourth quarter and the Steelers pulled away. What's really crazy, Sheriff, is that he played in the Pro Bowl the next year, in the next week, which, you know, nowadays if you have a broken fingernail, those guys wave off. He's in there with a, a broken leg. And uh, he said he wasn't going to pass up that trip to Hawaii. He knew if he could play in the Super Bowl, he could do the Pro Bowl. And, and then just one more quick Youngblood story was, you know, there's probably never been a, a better defensive player from the University of Florida. His senior year, in 1970, the trainer and the and one of the team doctors was getting getting a sport drink together to get rid of the cramps and, and all the minerals, replace those when when working out in the humidity. The Florida Gators, every after every practice, they brought this big tin uh, tin jug, if you would, around, passed it around, and took a drink. You know, sometimes it was salty, sometimes it was sweet, sometimes it tasted like milk. Most of the time, it tasted absolutely terrible. They finally tuned it in, found that citrus flavor. Of course, that ended up being Gatorade, and uh, Jack Youngblood and his 49 teammates were, were the guinea pigs. Yeah, a, I think a lot of people know the story that you know Gatorade started at the University of Florida. I had no idea that that Jack Youngblood was a part of that you know time, and it was was the guinea pig there, and that was actually a really cool story to read as well. Uh, so, you know, coming down to, to today's Rams, you know, I see your pictures right. on Twitter you with Sean McVay and, and stuff like that. It's really cool. Uh, what kind of stuff about this year is either maybe reminiscent of those older times or maybe is it, you know, just a completely new era and it's celebrating the old times? Like, what about this year is just so exciting for the Rams? Well, you know, it's kind of crazy. It kind of reminds you of the 51 title team with Bob Waterfield, Norm Van Brocklin. Years, I mean, they they rolled up five thousand yards in a year. This is in the early fifties. Everybody's running the ball. Nobody was doing that. Here's uh, Van Brocklin you know, throwing it to Tom Fierce. Fierce had seventeen touchdowns. You know, he had eighteen receptions in the game. I mean, this was so far ahead of what everybody else is doing. And you look at this year's team, and and w- with what Jared Goff has been able to do, and and just the resurgence of the whole franchise under Sean McVay. I mean, he's 31, he looks like he's 21, and you talk to him, you think he's 81. I mean, this is an old soul in a young hip body. This guy is as sharp as they come. And what he's done to that offense has been, uh, if you saw the Rams last year, you know how, how big of an improvement it is. I think the key is having that Whitworth, the left tackle, and Campbell at center. I mean, they've started the same five every every game this season. That's, that's very rare, and that speaks volumes. Todd Gurley's gone off, and and look at those uh, the perimeter perimeter weapons as well with Watkins and Woods and Cup and and you know all those guys are twenty five and under. Uh, Gurley's twenty three, Goff's twenty three. They're fifty million dollars under the salary cap. 
you got the best defensive tackle on the other side of the ball so they can beat you defensively. And then they had probably the best special teams in the league, too, although losing the Legatron, Greg Zerline, that, that's a huge loss, their kicker. So I, I think what's, what's uh, most compelling about this team, it's not like it, they lean on one thing, like, man, what an offense. And if the offense is off, you're in trouble. They can beat you special teams, they can beat you in defense, and they can beat you offensively as well. It's it's been a fun year. I know that I live out here in Colorado, so you know a couple of years ago you got the Broncos doing really well. All my friends are talking trash because the Rams are you know having a difficult time, and and boy have the tables turned, and that has been a lot of fun. Um, but you mentioned you know uh, the the energy that Sean McVay brings. I remember you know obviously watching this team for for years. You know so you see Jeff Fisher and he's just kind of standing there, and I don't want to sit right. here and bash Jeff Fisher or anything, but. Uh, just as, as an example to talk about McVay, you know, McVay, you see him in training camp and he's out here, you know, playing defensive back while the r- wide receivers are running their routes. And so then he's right there in the action and he's telling the receivers right after the route. And I think that was the moment that I realized is like, OK, this this might be more fun than these past few years. What was the moment for you that you kind of realized, like, is this team pretty good? You know, I, I think it was definitely uh I sure saw it last week in Seattle, but you could see it growing during the season that two games. I think that's a mark of a great coach that he doesn't let the same team beat them twice in consecutive weeks. And if they had a bad game, if they lost to Minnesota, they bounced back. You know, they lost to Philadelphia, they bounced back. But I think what told me that this guy was um, sheriff, if you will, comfortable in his own skin is that he hired Wade Phillips. Wade Phillips is 70 years old, has been a head coach at various spots. In his 40th year in the NFL, there's not much Wade Phillips running defense hasn't seen. So he felt comfortable to bring in a, a former head coach who obviously is much older and, and more experienced. But he said, that's all right. You take care of the defense. And he also uh, brought back John Fossil, the, the special teams coach, who was the interim coach. The interim coach never sticks around. When the new coach comes in town, he's out, you know. Cause, but no, he knew this guy was a dynamite special teams coach. So he kept him. So I think he's uh, he doesn't feel threatened. It's more of a we're in all this together instead of I want I want all the glory. And if you notice in the post game press conference, if they win because of golf, Gurley, did you see Donald? How about our special teams with Hecker? If they lost, boy, I didn't prepare for these guys. I got to do a better job. And he's pointing to his own chest. So when it, it's it's striking, whenever they win, he spreads that sugar around to everybody. But when they lose, even when uh, a, a couple players might have glaring mistakes at critical junctures in the game, he says, boys, that's on me. I didn't prepare you enough. And, and I think that says a lot of, say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall on the grenade for you guys. You just play hard next time. The players love him. You know, some of the players are his age for sure. But, he, uh, you know, but there's, the, there's the separation. I mean, you've got to be the separation between the player and the coach. But that being said, uh, he talks their language, and, and they dig playing for him. Absolutely. I think it's kind of interesting that he does take the blame for, for those losses. And, you know, I'm kind of now I'm waiting for the tables to turn back to the players, where after a loss, McVeigh will say, you know, I didn't prepare everybody. Like, it's my fault. I, I got to do better. I'm waiting for that to happen. And then immediately after, somebody like Jared Goff or Todd Gurley to say, no, he did prepare us. We didn't get the job done. And I think that that's kind of the style of this team this year is, you know, it's it's everybody's in it together and people are willing to take blame. And I think that that's pretty cool. But we have now, of there was a very long layoff. 
But we have now two teams in Los Angeles, two teams that you've covered, two teams that you've written books about. How do you feel about the Chargers being in Los Angeles now, having covered them for so long? I think it's an absolute shame what the NFL did to San Diego. This is a, a city that's certainly Super Bowl worthy and on an international border and has great weather and has six decades of a fan base, which is uh, supported. A product. Let's be clear, hasn't always been very good. I mean, they're going to miss the playoffs now for the seventh time in eight years with a quarterback of the caliber of Philip Rivers. That, that's a crime, please. So they've, they've, they trotted out a shoddy product for the most part. People down here still, still, still supported them. And for the NFL to not be able to bridge a gap or to, to not be able to fund more for a stadium, I think it's a crime. Look, we knew San Diego didn't have an appetite for a lot of public funds. For the no place in California does. There's a reason why the two newest stadiums in L.A. are the Rose Bowl, 1921, and the Coliseum, 1923. We don't hand out money here like that. California, we get taxed for everything, but we're not willing to subsidize a $15 billion industry. Three California cities told the NFL to go pound sand. San Diego, Oakland, and L.A. This is all a private deal here with Stan Kroenke's, the L.A. deal. So you knew that going in, and, and for the NFL to uh, you know be, have that sense of entitlement for the Spanos family to, uh, to basically give a, a one-finger salute to the, those dedicated fans who invested so much emotionally and financially in his product. Fans that turned a $40 million investment into a $2 billion asset, and their reward for that was later. See ya. No goodbye, no thanks, no, hey, you know what? It's a new chapter. Come on up with us. You know, we got from here, L.A. to the, the Mexican border. Let's build a powerhouse. Let's build a regional powerhouse. Why can't we be the Southern California Chargers and represent everybody? Instead, there was no olive branch. There was nothing. It was, we're out of here. See you chumps later. And I think that the way that was handled couldn't have been handled any worse. And, you know, they're, they're having difficulty putting 25,000 people in the seat. 25,000 people take the wrong off-ramp on the freeways up in L.A. You know, to get 25,000 isn't that big a deal. And the NFL certainly didn't can't be happy with all this. You know, they wanted to do it right. There's been such an absence in L.A. for so long. One team, a, a team with legacy could have come in there, like the Rams, and, and build it. Now now it's a two-team, a, a two-horse race, if you will. And, and, you know, the Chargers have some work to do because people say they're the fourth most favorite professional team in town behind the Rams, Raiders, and USC Trojans. Yeah, I, I think that's very possible. <laughs> do, uh, do you think that, you know, this has kind of been my thought. Uh, I would love to get your thoughts on this. Do you think that the Chargers will ever return to San Diego? No, you know, no, no, no. Uh, now, if, but the Rams returned after 22 years, but it was a special circumstance. Now, uh, if a billionaire guy wants to come in and build a stadium in, in one of the greatest cities in the world, uh, I think they could, and, and I don't know where that team's going to come from, but, you know, there's just, there's no appetite for public money. Uh, there's no appetite to jump back in bed with the NFL after they treated the citizens of San Diego so rudely and, and so, uh, adversely. So there, there's not a big groundswell. They certainly couldn't come back with Dean Smadness as the owner. Now, if he sold and, and they moved back again, you know, maybe that could happen, but, you know, they're in L.A., and it's going to be tough to, to match nickels on nickels to an L.A. team, the San Diego team. But it circles back to Dean Spanos. Yes, it's worth $2 billion now, 
but how big a stack of money do you need? I mean, the guy was a billionaire living in La Jolla with a view any of us would die for. Now he's a piranha in, in his, you know, one of his hometowns. He can't ever come back to San Diego, really. And uh, yes, you know, it's worth $2 billion now, but, you know, you're playing in front of 15,000 Charger fans and 10,000, you know, opposing fans. And you're really a team without a, a fan base, which is awful weird in the NFL. As uh, when they went to LA, there were no confetti from the sky, and there was no parades that welcomed him up there. They've been kind of an afterthought to begin with, and then when you lose your first four games uh, out of the gate, it was just a uh, it was doomed for failure. But uh, again, and I'm not being naive. This is a long term play, and this is a 30, 50 year vision deal. And, and they get into that new stadium, you know, they'll probably be drawing some people. But to for the NFL to wipe away the, the San Diego. A locale in its league, I thought was a shame. Yeah, I think you're right about the, the the city of San Diego would probably not accept Dean Spanos back. No, that, like that's, that's very clear. Yeah. Um, so on kind of a, a more a more sour note, we've gotten recently some news about um, uh, Mr. Dick Enberg, and uh, he actually was he participated in your book. He did the foreword on your book. And uh, we have, unfortunately, we have heard that he has passed away. Uh, I, w- I just want to see if you want, if you had any words that you wanted to to, to say about about Dick. Uh, yeah, you know uh, that's my childhood. And from when I was eight to eighteen, he was he was the Rams' voice, and the young Dick Emperor, nineteen sixty six to nineteen seventy seven. And then uh, he called Merlin Olson's games, and then he ended up working with Merlin Olson. And we were doing the forward for the game of my life, Rams, and and Dick. You know, he was writing it, and I'm sitting there writing it with him, and I'm going, whoa, I'm writing something with Dick Emberg, America's Best Storyteller, please. But he wanted to make sure that Merlin Olson was, was mentioned. And I think it just shows the, the loyalty of his friendship and, and what Merlin Olson meant to him. And, you know, Dick Emberg was all sports, you know, 10 Super Bowls, 28 Wimbledons, uh, the Rams, the Padres, the, the Bruins. He called Bruins basketball share for nine years. Eight of those years, they won NCAA titles. Can you imagine that for a young guy just getting his first start? So, uh, you know, oh my, he, he's up there smiling. But but we're uh, in San Diego. I'm in San Diego. We're uh, we're sad and we're in mourning. And uh, he was all sports, but better than that, he was all class. And it didn't matter if you were a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author or if you were a kid sweeping up the the beer cups after a game. He'd come over and give you a handshake and. And any any amount of time you want it, he was always very generous with it. Definitely a very talented guy, and I I know that you know obviously with with the book and and everything that that he meant a lot to you. So I appreciate yeah. you talking about that for for a short Great. time. I know that that was probably pretty hard for you, but um, Jay, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I really really appreciate it. All right, you know this then I got an hour of material here, Sheriff. Let's go. <laughs> well, I've got a day job still, so i got to go do that. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, I look forward to listening to it. And uh, I hope uh, sometime we're in the same press box or the same area and come over and stick a hand out and like to meet you in person. That will absolutely happen someday. I, I actually, my father is a big Chargers fan, so the plan is to be in Los Angeles for the Rams and Chargers game at the Coliseum next year. So maybe I will All see right. you there. Stay in touch, and uh, I appreciate the, getting the word out on Game of My Life Rams. But- any Ram fans, I mean, it's a great book, and uh, I'm not just saying that. A lot of people told me that they enjoy the stories. I've been recommending it to all the Rams fans I know, just so you know. <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> all right, Sheriff. Uh, 
Thank you so much, Jay. You have a great day. Hey, seriously. Bye-bye.